0: Good morning. We're going to be making our way through the last chapters of the book of Romans. As we've said, Romans chapter 1 through 11, Paul tells us what to believe. Beginning chapter 12 tells us how to behave. And in the Bible, that seems to be the way it is. The Bible expresses to us what we're to do, but first it expresses to us what we should believe. Believing is foundational then behaving. There's what we should think, and then there's how we behave. And that's another way to say it. There's there's indicative, where you say to someone, this is true, and then imperative, where you command somebody to do something. And in the Bible, it's indicative and then imperative. It's what you believe, and it's how you behave. It's orthodoxy, straight thinking, then orthopraxy, straight acting. And when it comes to chapter 12, he describes and starts to express the will of God. How does God want us to act? We looked that mercy is the fulcrum. It's, it's that which is the foundation for Christian acting. When we understand the gospel, we understand the mercy of God. And then that becomes the foundation from which our ability to please him Rises. He talks about in chapter 12 our relationship with the church, spiritual gifts. And then in chapter 13, he describes our relationship with the state, how we should comport ourselves relative to government and society. Um, in verses 1 and 2, we looked at last week. I'm just going to read these. These aren't in your worship folder, but this is where he says, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. But there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. And What it describes here in, in fairly direct universal global language is that all nations are nations under God. All nations are nations under God. God puts authorities in place. This is an extreme statement, especially when looked at from the perspective of those who would live in authoritarian, tyrannical regimes. And America is a democracy. That we might not agree with Democrats, we might not agree with Republicans, but we live in a far better place than if we lived under an Islamic state, under a militant extremist Islamic state. God puts those authorities in place. Really? Um, So then we have to ask a question when we come to a letter. Why does Paul make this point? And what we need to understand about a letter is that it's kind of like this. Yeah? And then what happened? Oh. Oh. Yeah, what we understand is that um, we're under the authority of the government. Yeah, but what no, yeah, but but then the authorities that establish have been established by God. Now, you can hear this side of the conversation. What you can't hear is the other side of the conversation. Why am I saying what I'm saying? Why is Paul writing what he's writing? There's something happening on the other side. And and then what we need to ask is what is Paul responding to? Why is he saying what he's saying? What is being said on the other side of the line? Uh, establish some foundation. The Old Testament links the fortunes of Israel and the fortunes of God. Those two are inextricably tied in the Old Testament. The fortunes of Israel and the fortunes of God are inextricably intertwined. Um, The Jews are his chosen people. Um, That's what it says in Deuteronomy when Moses is giving the second accounting of the law in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy means second. Namas means law. After having walked with the Israelites for 39 years in Deuteronomy, he recaps what it is God wants them to do. And here's what he says. The Lord commanded us to obey. This isn't in your worship folder. Just listen. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive. Deuteronomy six twenty-four. as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess, and drives out before you many nations, The Hivites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars. Smash their sacred stones. Break down their altars and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your, your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possessions. Jews are the chosen people, and Gentiles are not. And if you are a non-Jew within the framework of the Old Testament, well, here's what Paul described in Ephesians 2, 11-13. Again, just listen. For Gentiles, he says, Therefore remember that formerly you formerly you, who are Gentiles by birth, called uncircumcised by those who call themselves a the circumcision? Remember that at that time, prior to Christ, and listen to what he describes. You were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and Without God and the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. So what ends up happening when it goes from old covenant to new, it gives us a chance to draw near to God. That's why Jesus came. But understand that at the time Paul was writing, the only Bible that exists is the first 39 books of the Old Testament a book that describes often and frequently that God is the God of the Jews. That's important for us to remember. And, well, look, the Old Testament is the only Bible they had. And I think there is pressure being brought to bear on Christians to lobby for the liberation of Israel, the original people of God. Rome defeated Israel in the 2nd century B.C., and again in the 1st century B.C. And I think what happens then, if the Bible is the only Bible you have is the 39 books of the Old Testament, it was not possible to avoid being tripped up by thinking that in order to get close to God, you need to become Jewish. You needed to vie for and lobby for Israel because to get close to God, you need to go through Judaism to be close to God. Those with Jewish backgrounds would overtly or covertly preach in Rome government resistance to Gentiles. You call yourself Christians? Let's say we're in a Roman city. It's Roman city. You're Gentile Christians. You call yourself Christians here? Well, if you've read the first 39 books of the Bible, God is the God of the Jews. And therefore, in order for you to be close to God, you need to lobby for the liberation of Israel. And I think those kind of things are happening at that time. Paul preached government subordination. And what Paul said, don't do it. Don't do it. Throughout his life, Paul dealt with this pressure. Even before he became a believer, I think he dealt with pressure to use his Roman citizenship to forward Jewish liberation. Uh, Paul was a Roman citizen and a Jewish leader. Can you imagine that? He was a Roman citizen and a Jewish leader, both. Romans would have considered Romans us and Jews them. Jews would have considered Jews us and Romans them. Paul was and us and a them at the same time. In one body, And he lived with the tension all his life when he was in Israel. I think pressure was brought to bear for him to use his Roman citizenship to lobby for the liberation of Israel. I think his fellow Pharisees would have told him that. In fact, I think what happens when Jesus said, when he's remembered when Jesus stopped Paul on the road to Damascus. And he said, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. What we know is that when the Jews were under, in the Old Testament, at the time of Goliath and David, and yeah, 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 um, Philistines, when they were over, Israel didn't allow them to have weapons. And I think we talked about this last week. What the Israelites would use for weapons is goads. They would go and sharpen their goads, which were kind of like swords, you'd stick things with it. And I think when Jesus says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? I'll I'll answer the question. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Think what's happening? Goads represent Jewish resistance when they're dominated by foreign powers. That's all they had to stick back with. So Jesus says, Paul, here's the deal. It's hard for you to kick against goads, isn't it? Your countrymen are prodding you to vie for and to lobby for the liberation of Israel. And it's hard for you to kick against it because Paul can't take up the Jewish cause with the same intensity because he's also a Roman citizen. Do you understand the tension that he lives with? You get that? He's not really included anywhere. He's not totally included by Romans because he's a Jewish leader. He's not included by Jews, because he's a Roman citizen. And that's what I think he deals with this. I think he dealt with this influence his entire life. Um, I'm not sure about this, but Jesus told Paul what the good news was. He had a third heaven experience. He tells us a little bit about it. He didn't learn the good news by talking to people. What he tells us in Galatians he had a personal audience with Jesus Christ. He was summoned and had this vision. And Jesus told him what the gospel is. You know what? I And I don't know this. I have a sneaking suspicion. that Because Paul said there's things that he was told that he's not permitted to tell. I think Jesus told him. And again, I don't know. I think. He told him, Paul. You have about a generation to put the foundation of the church in place because, and I'm not sure he gave him a date, but I think he told him that Jerusalem is going to fall. It's going to be destroyed. As Jesus said, when he approached the city, not one stone is going to be left on another. I think that Paul knew that. You know what's interesting? The Jewish movement to liberate and get Rome off their back intensified in the mid-60s. Guess when Paul left the scene? Mid-60s. 65, 66. It became violent in 66, 67, 68. Rome came, put a siege against Jerusalem. It was devastating. 1.1 million Jews died a large number crucified on the road from Jerusalem to Rome crosses on both sides of the roadways 100,000 were imprisoned that's what happened right after Paul died i think Paul went through his life knowing i have to put the foundation of the church in place Because when I leave, the foundation of Judaism is going to be absolutely disintegrated. I think he knew that. He knew that. And so all his life, I think he's under pressure to, come on, Paul, use your Roman contacts to overthrow Rome and to put Israel back in power. And Paul was not allowed to say what he knew that's not the way it's going to work. Because it's not God's purpose for Jerusalem to remain intact. And I think every time he walked into that city, he understood. But Jesus understood when he walked into the city. This is not going to exist within a short while. Paul's problem again is that he was a Roman and a Jew. He understood that it was not God's purpose for Israel to be brought under Roman rule. He would have argued this point and when he argued this point he would have looked like a Roman sympathizer. So when we read about submit to the governing authorities here's my sense of what's happening here. In talking about submitting to governing authorities Paul is addressing Anti Roman Jewish religious sentiments, sentiments. And in that context, he goes on and talks about okay, Christians, here's how you should respond and respect the state. And look now, it's in your text. It says Romans 13, 3 to 5. He says, For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what's right. He'll commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an angel of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. Okay, we have to listen to the other side of the phone line. God wants Israel to be free. I think that's what he's being told. Any Christian who doesn't lobby for the freedom of Israel opposes God. And Paul disagrees. And what he does, he spurs the Romans to do what's right. Rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of a one authority? Then do what is right. He'll commend you, for he is God's servant to do you good. He wants them to do what's right, and next week we'll look at some of the things he wants them to do. Give them honor. Give them respect. Pay your taxes. Give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God's what is God. That's what he's going to tell them to do. And he's going to warn them not to do wrong. If you do wrong, be afraid. He does not bear the sword for nothing. They were being pushed to oppose the government because of religious convictions. Paul says, don't do that. Don't. In doing so, they will not be fighting alongside God, they'll be fighting against him. Interestingly enough, Roman society admired the Jews. Interestingly, about a tenth, 10% of the Roman Empire was Jewish. They were seen within the context of polytheism. You know, Romans and the Greeks had a bunch of gods who were no real better than, than very strong, powerful, pumped-up kids. Oh, they were being this one was jealous of that one, and this God did that and and it seemed kind of silly. and they looked at Rome, they looked at Jews and they a God who was in charge, not a bunch of gods, and they said, "You know what that makes some sense makes some sense And they liked Jewish morality. They lived kind of a life that made sense, they respected them the Roman government grant Jews religious freedom. They were the only ones that I'm, a, I'm aware of. When Caesar was being marched through the center of the street, and you were Jewish citizens, Roman citizens, and um, hail Caesar. And when you confessed to Caesar, you didn't confess privately. You confessed but See, hail Caesar. And, and But if you were a Jew, you were exempt. If you were a non-Jew and you didn't hail Caesar, you were took, taken at sword point and forced to confess him. Unless you were a Jew. They, had, they were given that, that, that privilege. Um, if Rome had a problem with Jews, especially in Jerusalem, it was because of the uprisings triggered by radical Zionists within Israel. The Israelites were goaded and prodded into overthrowing the Roman government. Um, and um, I think Paul is opposing this civil disobedience within the context of the first century. Israel and Rome, he's saying don't throw them off, submit. I think this is, th- this is what's in this passage. God puts governments in place, do what is right, not just because of the fear of punishment. Everybody does that. You know, you go down the street. Some of you I've heard exceed the speed limit. You now, some of us never would exceed the speed limit. I think it's okay to go 82. I've heard that you can't go more than you know in the 80. You can you can creep it up to 82 or 83. Anybody ever experiment with going under 10 miles over? Going yeah, okay, yeah, okay, yeah. I see that hand. that. Um. But it says not just because of fear, but because of conscience. Everyone can do and obey because of fear, but Christians because of conscience. Um, In this text, firmly clear as we think about sacred authority, God's in control. God's in control. That's what Paul writes. He puts rulers in place. There were times in Israel's history where they used God's control kind of like a good luck charm. It was a story I'll I'll read. It's interesting. It's funny, kind of. Not funny. Maybe that's a little strong. Um, Anyways, they they were fighting against Philistines, and they were getting their butt kicked. And here's what they said. I know what we're going to do. We're going to get the Ark of the Covenant. And we're going to lead. let the Ark of the Covenant go before us into battle. They're going to bring out their trump card. And what ended up happening? So they the Ark of the Covenant went first, and all the Israelites were saying, okay, now we'll see. And they were defeated by the Philistines. And the Philistines took the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, into their territory. And it gives a story of what happened. We read this. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, I love the story. Great. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. Now, Dagon is the Philistine god. So you got to get this. They took the Ark of God and they put it next to Dagon. And Dagon was probably up on a, a higher thing. And, and then the Ark of God was just kind of below it. And here's what, what do you think happened? This is a great story. When the people of Ashdod rose... Early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face, on the ground, before the Ark of the Lord. (laughs) They took Dagon and put him back in his place. (laughs) But the following morning, (laughs) the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the lord his head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold only his body remained that is why to this day neither the priests of dagon nor any others who enter dagon's temple at ashdod step on the threshold so you got to get this sense so his Arms were gone, his legs were gone. They couldn't put him back up in the thing because the end he would just would have just rocked off like one of those little weeble things, only it doesn't it didn't right itself. Okay, so then they um uh, the Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumors. We don't know about these tumors. It could have been a plague. Somebody says it might have been <laughs> hemorrhoids. So the Philistines were afflicted with some tumor, and it might be, a bit, anyways, so here's what happened. When the men of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us, because his hand is heavy upon us and upon Dagon, our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath. So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. So they sent the Ark of God to Ekron. As the Ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They brought the Ark of the God of Israel around us to kill us and our people. God can take care of himself. Sometimes we think we have to fight God's battles. We have to defend God. God is hopeless apart from the intervention of people. What we find God is in control. He went to a place where gods and people who did not know him or worship him, it wasn't much of a battle. Dagon couldn't put much of a defense. Neither could the people, and the Israelites learned a lesson. No government is stronger than God. I don't care what government it is our government, an Islamic government, it doesn't need to worship God. God is sovereign and in control over the affairs of the world. There's all kinds of stories in the Bible like that. God has no problem defending himself. Um, He proved that in Babylon as well. When it got about up into the 8th century B.C., The northern kingdom of Israel, Israel was split into half, was taken into captivity to the Assyrians. And Isaiah said to the south, and that's who he was speaking to. So he was speaking to the southern kingdom just before the northern kingdom went into captivity. And he told the south, your brothers in the north are not going to be there long. And they might have looked from Jerusalem because they had the capital, Jerusalem. And they felt God would never allow anybody to set foot in Jerusalem. Never. This is where God lives. And Isaiah said, and your time is coming in the south. You will be overthrown. and You're going to be taken captive as well. And they accused Isaiah of conspiracy. Because they said he certainly must be working for a foreign government. Because we know that God would never allow a government to overtake us. And that proved false. As Isaiah predicted, the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom and the Babylonians conquered the southern kingdom about a century and a half later. God, however, proved himself perfectly capable of protecting his honor with the Babylonians. Let me tell you what happened. Belshazzar was the king of Babylon at the time. His predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had been the one who overtook the southern kingdom and brought them into captivity. And this captivity was the one where the Assyrians and the Babylonians treated people differently. The Assyrians absolutely decimated an entire culture. The Babylonians were a little bit different. They took the best and brightest and imported them into Babylon to teach them the Babylonian ways. And so Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were taken into training in Babylon. And that's kind of how that worked. And Belshazzar then, he was throwing a banquet. And he said, I know what let's do. Those gold objects, the vessels, those gold cups we got from Israel, when we we defeated them, get those. I want us to use those for our party. I want to use them for, we're going to drink wine out of them. And so they took all the gold objects that were taken out of the temple and people were downing drinks. Sometime during the night, a hand appeared, a disembodied hand, and started to write on the wall. Mene, mene, tekel, Parsin. And it says Belshazzar was so frightened, his knees knocked, and he was pale. He said, somebody tell me what that means. And they brought his astrologers and his wise men, and they looked, and they had no idea what it meant. Then the queen, she said, I know that there's a man, an Israelite, who has told dreams before. And they call for Daniel. And here's what Daniel says in Daniel 5, and it's in your worship folder if you want to follow along. This is Daniel explaining, O King, the Most High God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. And he tells a story that is not in the accounts Of the Babylonian government, and when you hear the story, you'll understand why. Babylon didn't say a lot about their conquest. They were fairly civil. The Assyrians, they talked about how they trashed this government and that one. The Babylonians were a little more ethical. We don't find this story, we find there's fragments that talk about Nebuchadnezzar coming to a difficult time in his life. Here's what happened. Let's read the account. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of the earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. Apparently what happened and Nebuchadnezzar understood that it was the God of not Israel, but the God of Babylon, the real God of Babylon, and the God of Assyria, and the God of the universe, God Almighty, the God who revealed himself to the world through Israel. It was him. He was in charge. And he understood that he had been driven crazy until he came to understand, wait a minute, he is God. God had no problem introducing himself to the Babylonians. They had never heard of him, never worshipped him. It didn't create a problem for God. And God doesn't need us to defend him. He will use, but he doesn't need it. He doesn't depend on you. To safeguard his reputation. God is sufficiently strong to do whatever he wants to do. He puts government face, Look what ends up saying. He ends up saying, but you, his son, verse 22, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself. Though you knew all this, instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you. And you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drink wine from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, Parsin. This is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Peres, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And the text goes on to say, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. about sacred authority. God's in control. Um, Still raises a question though. Why does God allow governments who oppose Him to be put into power to begin with. Let's talk about secular authority. In Micah chapter 7, there was a time, well, let's read it. Micah chapter 7, verse 2, says the godly have been swept from the land. Not one upright man remains, Micah writes. All men lie in wait to shed blood. Each hunts his brother with a net. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright, worse than a thorn hedge. And he says, the day of your watchman has come. The day God visits you. Now is the time of their confusion. What he does, he looks at the... It was people, moral flatliners. It was, it was not a good time. And Micah looks at why is this happening and cites it's the leadership. And when it says about what they were doing wrong, what it basically says is they were in places of leadership in order to do what they wanted. Judges were demanding bribes. Those in leaders were using their position to be able to get what they want. And that was their problem because God puts leaders in place to serve people, not to serve themselves on people. And what it says in that context, Micah said, you are being watched. You might feel as if there's no one to challenge your ability to do what you want because you're on top and you can do whatever you want. No one can oppose you. That's what the leaders believe. But what Micah says to them, your watchman is coming. And it says now is the time of their confusion. Confusion means when you don't know which way to go. You don't know which way to turn. And what he's describing is the leaders had been directing this and that. And he goes, your watchman's coming. And when your watchman comes, God Almighty, there'll be an accounting. I don't know how this works. But what he describes is you're going to look for a place to turn. You're not going to have any place to run. And what it says, when God, even with authorities and governments that that are corrupt, and don't use their power to serve people. He is watching. I think what God understands that sheep follow shepherds. And when shepherds, those who are in authority, feed themselves on the sheep, he understands what the sheep will do. Sheep will become anxious, and they will rebel, and God understands. That when you have corrupt shepherds, you have anxious sheep. So who does God hold accountable? He does hold leaders accountable. Remember the story when the leaders of Israel, at the time the Sanhedrin, were spiritual men. Jesus was healing someone, casting out a demon. There were Pharisees there looking. And they said, and because the sheep, those who were under the authority, of the Israelite government were looking to the Pharisees because they were trying to well, how should we think about this and then they said it's by Beelzebub that he casts out demons by Satan himself and then Jesus went on to say you can bring charges against the son of man but don't, don't, don't do that as far as the Holy Spirit is concerned you know what I think is happening here And he talks about the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin. I think the unpardonable sin is in that time at least. I'm not sure if it's possible to do today. The unpardonable sin at that time was somebody given authority by God Himself to rule, who knows better, who sees something that is clearly from God. And that individual, to save his own rule and reign, in that time Pharisees, sees something clearly from God and says, that's not from God, that's Satan. And that's unpardonable, because it's a leadership issue, and the watchman watches And it's unpardonable because there's sheep that are looking to the shepherd to tell them, how should I respond to this? And he says, it's Satan. And then then the sheep says, okay, I guess that's it. And Jesus says, you lead one of my sheep astray. That's unforgivable. Some people talk about, I wonder if I've done the unforgivable sin. If you've even worried about it, you haven't done it. I think it's a leadership sin. I'm not sure if it's even possible to do today. But at that juncture where God is moving out of the nation of Israel for a period of time into the Gentile world when somebody who knows better says that's not God that's unpardonable by the way God has not washed his hands of Israel we've talked about this talked about this a number of times there will come a time it's coming I don't know when when the last of the Gentiles will have entered. And then there will be a stop sign. And God will wave the Jews in. I'm not sure what that will look like. All I know, they will rush in. And they will understand who it is. Who He is. And they'll understand history. And I'd like to be able to see it. I'd like to be able to see it. Um, God understands that sheep obey shepherds We try to protect God's reputation. God's doing the best He can. You know, He spins the world and then steps back. God's a gentleman. God's a gentleman. He never forces His way into a place where He's not welcome. Tell Belshazzar that. Tell Nebuchadnezzar that. God does what He wants. He is sovereign and in control. He's large and And in charge. And he's good. We tend to want to picture God as being threatened by Satan. You know, God wants to do what he wants to do, but then the devil's opposing him and God can only do too much. No. God versus Satan is not even a fight. Dualism, that there's two powers in the universe, is a lie. God's in control, and he doesn't spin the world and set back and be a gentleman. No, he does allow things, but that's dualism and deism. Dualism and deism, there are two powers in place, and deism is that God backs up and he chooses not to be involved. No, nope, 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 nope. Monism and theism, there is one God in control in this world, and he does what he chooses And he's ultimately good. We don't understand why he does what he does, but he has his reasons. And then we ask, well, why does he allow these things to happen? I've told you this story before about the two farmers. I'll say it again because I really like it. Two farmers, one wants to manifest his Christian devotion by not working on Sunday. Again, that's something that go mow your lawn on Sunday, that's fine. But this guy, He wanted to make a statement. It was fine. His heart was right. So he didn't work on Sunday. And his neighbor worked extra hard on Sunday just to kind of goad him. This guy didn't work on Sunday and let, and this guy really, oh boy, I tell you what, Sunday came up and he was out in the field and and then, so then um, came to a place where the harvest came. What do you imagine? Whose harvest was greater? Certainly, right? The one who honored God by not working on Sunday. Better harvest? No. The neighbor's harvest was better. He wrote a letter to the town paper. If God is real and worshiping him is worthwhile, why did I get a better yield? That's a good question, isn't it? All kinds of letters and feedback. and It was all put to rest by one sentence. Devin, come on up, guys. We'll sing a closing song. And as they're coming up, I'll let you know what that sentence was. God doesn't settle all his accounts in October. What you allow, what your word would indicate, it's not because you're weak. It's not because you can't enforce your will. Ultimately, you will be shown to be just. That's what your word says. God is just. He will pay back trouble for those who trouble. Give relief to those who are troubled. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven and blazing fire with powerful angels. You are merciful and just. I pray that we would know you better. Reflect you in our lives. Help us understand what it means to walk with you in the confusion of times like these. But in the confusion of times like these, we can know you are accomplishing your purposes all things will work together for good to those who love You and are called according to Your purpose. Help us to believe You in the midst of turbulence. In Jesus' name, Amen.